I've been wondering what to say to you because um, I don't come and speak in Oxford very often. I did come and speak at Wycliffe Hall once. Now, that was scary. <laughs> uh, but uh, two things happened last week which I wanted to tell you about. Um, at home, I keep little bantams, little, in fact, micro-bantams. So they're tiny, tiny little chickens. And uh, Mr. Fox came and he took the cockerel, which is really, really sad. Do you know what's interesting about chickens and, and cockerels? That the cockerel will let himself be caught rather than the hens. It's really it's quite symbolic, that, isn't it? Anyway, he did. He, he got the chop. And, uh, and then one of my little chickens, I couldn't find her anywhere at all. And for two days, I couldn't find her. And I do love my chickens. I love being a granny, but I also, they call me the batty bantam woman at home. And uh, so I was just praying, oh, God, please can my little chicken come home. And I went down uh, to feed the rest of them, and there was this little chirping going up in the tree. And there she was. Two days she'd been up the tree, the little grey hen. And uh, just as I, I had to get a box to, to sort of climb up to be able to get her, and she was a little hen who would never, ever be held or touched. She didn't like it at all. And this day, she allowed me to catch her. And she allowed me to bring her down. She was very hungry, and she was very scared, too. She was really trembling. And, uh, but she allowed me to catch her. And, you know, in my mind, in my sort of mind's eye, in my... In my sort of inner being, I just heard these words, allow me to rescue you. So that's my number one thought for you today, allow me to rescue you. And then the same week, we were out walking in the fields, my husband Tom and me, and uh, we came across a sinkhole. I don't know if you've ever seen those programs in America where houses just go, and they just disappear down a sinkhole. And this was a real live sinkhole in the field. I mean, it was big enough for my husband and the dog and a sheep all to disappear at the same time. Thankfully, he didn't go too near the edge. But, uh, you know, it was, it was quite a significant hole in, in the ground. And um, again, I just sort of felt this, this little word inside me saying... Um, you know, when, you, when, you, when you're just walking along quite happily in life, you can suddenly come across a sinkhole. And it would be different for all of us. You know, we can just be hit by illness or we can be hit by, uh, you know, tragedy or, or marriage difficulties or failure or, you know, or a number, number of things that suddenly take us unawares as we're just quite happily walking along. And you suddenly go whoosh into this sinkhole. And again, rather like I felt God saying, allow me to rescue you, I had another image of his very long arm, and it just looked like this, and it was like, it was like a bare arm just reaching down into the sinkhole to pull you out. So those are my two very specific thoughts for you here in Oxford today. So one is about reaching up and being rescued, allow God to rescue you. And the other one is about if you're down in the pit, is to allow him to, with his long arm, to reach down and pull you out. And I said to, I sort of said to my, my sort of inside me, my praying bit, you know, I, how, how do we do this? You know, how, how do you get your arm down the sinkhole and, and pull us out? And again, I had a thought that sometimes he leaves us a little bit longer than we would like down a hole or up a tree because he knows just the right time to rescue you. Just the right time. Whatever you're going through, his arm is long enough to reach down or to reach up to rescue you. He's not going to let you go. So I don't know what you've come with today. I don't know many or any of you. But um, if that's a little thought for you, just hold on to that today. Allow him to rescue you. His arm is long enough to pull you out of the pit. There's um, a, a lovely verse in the Bible called Taste and See that the Lord is Good. And I took one. I'm only going to mention my grandson once. I've got two, but I'm only going to mention them once. And um, I took him to the local farm shop where they uh, put all this nice cheese out onto a sort of black slate. You know, they put it in cubes and you're allowed to have a sample. And so I said to little Stewie, you know, you can have uh, a little cube of cheese. And he ate the cheese. He's three years old. And then I got chatting to the lady behind the counter and we have a good old natter. And then I turned around and looked down, blow me down, the whole lot had gone. <laughs> and little Stewie had tasted and seen that that cheese was very, very good. <laughs> He'd eaten the lot. 
And for many of us, you see, we, we never quite get to eat the whole platter. We only take a sample of what is good. We only take a little bit of what God is offering to us, of what Jesus is teaching us. And we, we never quite get the whole thing, do we? We get little snippets. Perhaps when there's disaster or things are going wrong, you suddenly think, oh, I need to pray. You know, but, it, but it's all a kind of bit of a rush thing, and we never really taste and see that the Lord is good. So I'd like to begin with a prayer just to get us ready for the whole platter, for the whole slate. Not that we just have a tiny morsel, but that you can really taste and see that he's good this morning, that you can hear things specifically for you that will speak into your life. So can we just pray together? So Lord Jesus, we thank you for inviting us to gather around you this morning for breakfast. And thank you for offering us a warm invitation to taste and see that you are good. And thank you that you say we will be blessed when we run to you. Thank you that you know how each and every one of us is feeling right now. And you know when we've just tried a sample of your goodness, but we've never really tasted the whole platter. And you know every hair on our head. You know every secret of our heart. You know every pain in our body. And you share every joy in our life. And you pour so many blessings on us, and we are thankful. And we thank you that your favor is around us like a shield this morning in this beautiful church. And we thank you that when we hit a sinkhole in our life, that your long arm is there reaching down to rescue us. And please show us this morning your mercy and your healing hand to allow us to be rescued. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I love um, watching British Bake Off. Anybody else enjoy that program? Yeah, great fan, great fan. And Strictly, yeah, great fan. Um, those two programs, absolutely love them. Feel a bit sort of odd when they're not on, you know that feeling. And, uh, but what I really like about both those programs is what goes on behind the scenes. I love it when they drop the cakes and everything falls out of the oven and, you know, it's a disaster. And in Strictly, I love it when, you know, it's a costume bursts or something like that. Um, it's, what going on, it's what's going on behind the scenes, the real-life bits. And I also adore hearing other people's stories, what's been going on behind the scenes. You know, what is it that's brought you to this part of your life here today? And as a retired ballet dancer, I can tell you that a great deal goes on behind the scenes. Actually, I must just tell you, I was, I was speaking the other day to a mixed group, and um, I was talking about things, and uh, I, I saw this lady and her husband, and, and the man looked really perplexed all the way through the talk, and he looked a bit uncomfortable. And I said to the uh, lady afterwards, she came up, and I said, was your husband okay during the talk? He didn't look very comfortable. She said, well, I'm sorry to tell you, but he actually misheard you, and he thought you said that you were a belly dancer. <laughs> Poor man. I mean, he'd spent the entire talk with this dreadful image of me being a belly dancer. So anyway, I trained for 15 years to be a ballet dancer. And I had um, 15 years in front of a mirror, which is not very good for your body image, in a leotard, in nylon, in, in lycra leotard. I still shudder when I see cyclists go by in lycra. But, you know, what goes on behind the scenes as a ballerina is a very important thing for the final performance. All that rehearsing, all that wrapping your toes up in cotton wool. We used to put surgical spirit on open blisters. I mean, you've got to imagine how painful that is. Um, and, and we put, you know, deep heat on us. We smelt dreadful most of the time. Uh, but what goes on behind the scenes gives the very best possible performance that you can give. And we were always told that the audience mustn't be aware of your bleeding toes. They mustn't be aware that your neck's hurting or your back hurting or your knee. They've paid good money to come and watch you perform. They don't want to know about the pain that's gone into that performance. And you put on your makeup, you put on your mask, you put on your tutu, and you get on with the job. And you smile. As a ballerina, very important that you smile. People want to see the fairy tale as a ballerina. 
But what about us when we're, we're not ballerinas? You know, what, what goes on behind the scenes? What sort of preparation have you gone to to get here today? I mean, you all look absolutely beautiful from where I'm standing. They're not a care in the world, I think. Um, but, you know, what, what, what lengths do we go to to put a, a really good performance on for the world? Which mask do we put on to present ourselves to one another? As a very little girl, I think I was about three when I really, really wanted to be a ballerina. Um, but a little bit as I grew older, I had a real sort of spiritual longing. And I think children do, don't they? If you've got children, grandchildren, you know, they, there's a real, they love things about God and Jesus. And, and they, there's a real natural inclination of spiritual life in a child. And when I was 11 years old, I remember saying and praying, actually, to God and, and saying, if I wasn't a, a ballerina, what I really wanted to be was a nun. And it was a real serious thing. I wanted to be a nun. I'd been watching a great deal of The Sound of Music. I knew all about being a nun. And I thought, well, this was a way ahead, you know. And there was this definite longing. There was a real gap in my heart, in my spirit, that was searching for something, for that meaning, that understanding. We've all been through it. You know, where does your hamster go when he dies? You know, when you're 11, that's important, isn't it? You know, who made God? You know, and, and all these big questions. How could I become Julie Andrews? You know, it mattered a great deal when you're 11 years old. And then I became more and more involved in the theatre and I went, went to the Royal Ballet. And it was very, very easy, you know, to rely on talent and just to put God right on the back burner. All that sort of um, performance all came forward. Everything else went backwards. Put on the party mask, rely on, on as I say, talent and gifting and enjoy the London life and ignore that gap in my heart that was searching for God. Maybe your experience too. We do it. It's just how we are, isn't it? And when I was 17 years old, almost 18, I got invited to um, a girls' Christian camp, which I have to be very honest and say I absolutely loathed. Um, they were all so nice. They were all so smiley and happy and lovely. And, and I felt utterly uncomfortable. You know, I come straight from London, from the whole sort of theatre scene. And uh, they, were, they were kind. I was pretty obnoxious, but they were kind and they were loving. And my world had seemed so unreal up until that point. But these people, these young girls, seemed to have found something that I knew was missing in my own life. And you know what? It made me feel really uncomfortable. Have you had that feeling when you're with nice people? You just kind of feel uncomfortable, and it makes you even worse in your behavior, doesn't it? Well, it did me. Um, but you know, my mask just began to slip and slip, and that yearning in my heart returned. It was amazing. It just came back. Because like many, many people, I honestly believed that I was a Christian. I went to church at Christmas. I went to church at Easter. I watched the sound of music. And I occasionally prayed. That makes you a Christian, I thought. I genuinely believed I was one. But I had no idea at that point that God could know and see what was happening behind the scenes. Somebody told me about a verse in the Bible that goes like this. The Lord does not look at the, the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So there's another translation in a modern version called the message, and it says men and women look at the face. God looks into the heart. And you know, you might even be looking at me right now and um, looking at my outward appearance and thinking, I wonder where she got that jacket from. You were. <laughs> there you go. You know, we do that, don't we? we? We look at one another, we make judgments about one another, about what we're wearing, what we look like. Um, I got it in an airport in Scotland. And it's got the best lining ever. Look at that. It's got, it's got deer and stags on. I mean, it's great, isn't it? But, you know, we do that, don't we? We can't help it. We look at the outward appearance all the time. And we judge by what we can see on the outside. But you see, God doesn't do that. He, by, he bypasses jackets from Scotland. He bypasses the roots that need touching up. I had mine done for you, thank you. Um, but, you know, he bypasses all the exterior stuff. And he looks straight into your heart because that's the bit that matters to him. And he looks behind everything. He looks behind the struggle. He looks behind the distress. He looks behind boredom. He looks behind loneliness. He looks behind lack of confidence. He looks behind loss of hope. 
He looks behind pain. He looks behind depression. He looks behind difficult relationships. He looks behind abandonment and sin and worry and anger. Whatever is hidden, God can see. Quite a thought, isn't it? But he only can see it with his eyes of love. And whether we know him or not, or whether your heart is leaning towards him or not, this is actually happening. It's going on all the time. He's looking behind the scenes of your life, and he's watching you with great love as you lead your one and only life. I was in um, a coffee shop near where we live in um, Seven Oaks, and you know often in, in coffee shops, they, the tables are really close together, aren't they? And I was with my friend, and she went off to get the coffee, and I was just sort of sitting there, you know, waiting for her to come back, hoping she was going to bring a chocolate brownie. And um, there were women at the next table, and they were having such a good old gossip, I can't tell you. And I just found myself doing this. I couldn't help myself. I was just leaning into this incredible conversation that was going on at the next table. Unfortunately, my friend came back too soon. I never got the end of the story, and I can't begin to tell you what it was. It was far too rude, but, you know, it was just this sort of sense of leaning in to what was going on. And that's all you have to do. If you've ever wondered what it means when people talk to you about becoming a Christian, that's all it is. You're just leaning into God. It's amazing. That's all you have to do. Lean in. Listen to what he's saying. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it, of, of leaning into the, to the God who loves you enough that he died for you. That's all you have to do. Lean in. And I was so shocked, you know, just going back a little bit, to find out that I didn't have to give a good performance for God. What a relief. If you're performance-orientated, you know, this is a huge relief to know that you don't have to good, give a good performance for God. And that there was more, that he loved me just for who I was. Not for what I'd achieved. Not because I was going to be a ballerina or how I looked or how good I tried to be. Whether I was a nun, whether I was a ballerina. But just simply because of who I am. This is called unconditional love. I can't imagine for one minute that he was very happy with my behavior. And I know a lot of that did have to change. But he loved me for who I was who I am. And I asked myself one question. This is when I was at this girls' camp. How could I ever be satisfied or truly content if I kept on running away from him? Have you ever asked him that question? How can I really be content or satisfied if I keep on running? If Jesus is saying, follow him, why wouldn't I? What's the big deal? Either this is real or it's not. Either what I'm about to tell you is real or it's not. You see, in every single human heart, there's a space that can only be filled by God's presence and his love. Because I don't know about you, but we're always telling everyone, you've got to be independent. You know, we're throwing our kids out of house, you know, for independence. And, you know, the word independence is so important in our culture. But, you know, we weren't created to be independent, we were created to be dependent on God and dependent on one another. And God's grace is sufficient in this life. It's not maybe sufficient or could be sufficient or might be sufficient, but his grace is sufficient. He's made us to be in this relationship with him and a relationship with one another. And if we insist on trying to fill that gap with other things, you know, we'll always feel miserable. We're always going to feel just awkward, out of sorts. I've tried for years to fill that space with other things. I've tried chocolate. It doesn't work. You just get fat. I've tried banoffee pie, which is my favorite, if you're a baker. I'd love one. Um, but, you know, I try to fill that gap, that sort of longing, that, that sort of bit of you that's never satisfied. But you'll never find hope and the peace that you long for if you just keep filling it with wine or chocolate or other things. It take it from me. <laughs> Don't even try it. It doesn't work. <laughs> and you know, until you sit down and you say, God, oh God, it's you who I'm searching for. You are what's missing. It's your love I really long to know. It's your peace that I'm searching for. It's your healing that I need today. Until you come to that point in your life, there will always be dis-ease. There will always be that sense of tension because the gap will never be filled. 
I've got a lovely um, Swedish friend called Ulf, and um, he's an incredible man. We, we met over the internet. It's not dodgy or anything, but um, Ulf is uh, probably 50, I think, now, and he um, has a very serious neuro- neurological illness called dystonia, which is what I had as well, and I'm going to speak about that in a moment. And Ulf has it so badly that he can't speak... Um, he can't hear, he communicates through very tiny little muscles in his face, and he has a most wonderful carer called Hannah Lee, who he's married a year ago, which is lovely. Um, And that's a a, a beautiful story. But um, he came to London from Stockholm. I arranged for him to come over, and we we thought, well, what could we do for Ulf that would be different from sitting in his flat all day by himself? So we took him to the Dorchester for coffee, and they were fantastic there, and they welcomed him and brought... Danish pastries and coffee and and in the middle of this and you've got to imagine you know marble pillars huge flower arrangements you know footmen and all the rest of it Ulf starts to cry really weeping crying crying and I said to Hannah Lee Hannah Lee what's wrong with Ulf what what's the matter and so she signed to him and and he answered her through his little facial muscles and he said what I want to know more than anything is about Jesus and his bubbles and I'm thinking Jesus and his bubbles I'm going through the New Testament, you know, all the disciples blowing bubbles on the Sea of Galilee. You know, where, where is he getting this from? You know, you've got to imagine he's deaf, he can't, he can't hear, he's barely been to church, he doesn't know much about Scripture. But he, in his mind, had something about Jesus and his bubbles. And he carried on crying, and I'm thinking, well, you know, please help me, I don't know what this is. And suddenly, just out of the blue, I had a little thought that what he was talking about was that feeling when you're in love. Now, have you ever had that? Anybody been in love here? <laughs> yes, Moyne's been in love. <laughs> Do you remember that wonderful feeling of bubbles and excitement and, you know, that joy that wells up inside you? And that is what he was talking about. He didn't know what it was, but he was expressing this wonderful joy that he felt right in his being. And what that was was the Holy Spirit of God in him making him know the love of Jesus Christ in his life without being taught a word. And that man, you know, he's severely trapped in his body, but he's more free than anybody I know. Incredible chap. And I'm sure the theologians won't go along with um, Ulf's Holy Spirit bubbles, but I'm going to because I love it. And it's very real, isn't it? It's amazing sort of feeling of love and joy. And he's got that, that man. God sent Jesus to earth and he said, if you hold to my teaching, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that's what this lovely man has found. He's found truth. I made the decision to seek out that truth and to follow Jesus 40 years ago now. And I followed him through thick and thin. Some of it's been awful. Some of it's been lovely. Um, And I've not regretted for one minute that decision Because his truth has set me free. I don't want to wear a performer's mask any longer. I don't actually even want to be Julie Andrews any longer. Would have been nice, but no. And with all the illness, all the suffering that we've been through for over 27 years now, I believe that his truth has set us free. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about our story, not to say, you know, how amazing haven't we coped well, but just to illustrate how God has helped us through it all. And how Jesus has given us peace through very, very difficult situations. Do you know what? He hasn't taken away the difficulties. He hasn't given us a quick fix. But he has been with us every step of the way. I mentioned I'd been um, at the Royal Valley. And when I was uh, rehearsing with my boy partner, he... um, We'd moved to Lycra Leotards by then, and he was lifting me up, and his hands slipped on my Lycra Leotard, and I fell to the floor, and I fractured my spine. And, you know, somehow all those dreams from a three-year-old little girl to be a ballerina were shattered in that moment. I had to wear a plaster jacket for about nine, ten months, and, you know, I was really unable to do anything. I couldn't dance, obviously. Uh, When I had all the jacket off, I was able to go back to the Royal Ballet, but do you know what? I knew I'd lost something. When you're at a very high level of any sort of training and you have an injury, it's really hard to get back up there. 
And uh, I'm going to sort of whiz through a bit of this, but this eventually, uh, that back accident, I had meningitis when I was seven months pregnant. Um, I had a neck injury, and the feeling was that all these three sort of spinal brain injury type things led to this illness, dystonia, which my friend Ulf has. And how it affected me was... um, it began in my right leg, and, and my foot started to turn in. And then gradually, bit by bit, my, my right leg began to contract right up across my body. And my, left, my right knee ended up on my left shoulder. I can't show you because my jeans are too tight. But, um, and I, actually, I can't even do it anymore. But you, know, that you can imagine the strength of these muscle spasms, that they would bring your leg right up across your body. And then the left leg started to do a similar thing until my legs got all tangled up. And then my arms started to um, come up like this, and my wrists went right over in spasm like that. My hands went into complete spasms like that. And then my head started drawing over my left-hand shoulder. So I was really sort of in a ball, in a sort of like a fetal ball. What happens with dystonia? It's um, a neurological movement disorder. It comes from the same part of the brain as Parkinson's. Uh, And I must say, with this, I shook as well. I had a lot of tremors, and I dribbled. I had to be dressed, I had to be bathed, I had to be fed like a child. It was, it was a horrible illness. And having been a ballerina and looked at for beautiful things, to suddenly have something that people stared at you, you know, you go down the street in a wheelchair and people stare at you, it was very humiliating. The worst part was not being able to look after my little children. They were one and four, my girls. They couldn't sit on my knee because my knee was up like that and my arms. I couldn't hold them. I couldn't be a mother to them. I couldn't be a wife to my husband, Tom. And bit by bit by bit, you know, everything started packing up. My eyes then started shutting as well, these terrific muscle spasms. Have you ever had cramp at night? Right, you've got to imagine that all over. It's unbelievably painful. It's unspeakably painful. And for that, they give you huge doses of pain relief, um, morphine-type drugs, and also levodopa, so Parkinson drugs, and um, lots of Valium as well, everything to try and dampen all this down. So you're kind of like a zombie as well with it. And, you know, it was in that state. I was in the National Queen's Square Hospital, in the National Hospital, and... I was a believer. We'd all been praying. And the strange thing was, I seemed to be getting worse and worse and worse, not better. It was very confusing. And it came to a point at the National Hospital where my friend Virginia came. And she brought a man with her called Jim Glennon, who is, was, he's passed away now, but he was um, a, a canon from Australia. I didn't know who he was. I didn't actually care who he was at the time. When you're that ill, you're only caring about the next breath that you can take. It's just literally... Breathe in, breathe out. There was the talk of going on a ventilator. I was terrified about going on a ventilator. So I was trying to keep my breathing going. Breathe in and out and in and out. So it was that state that they came to visit me. And this man, I didn't know anything about him. He just prayed in faith. He believed for me. I couldn't believe. I was way out of it. But he prayed in faith. And this is all he prayed. He said, thank you, Father that you are healing me now. Thank you, Jesus, that you are healing me now. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are healing me now. That's all he said. And then he wrote on a piece of paper in big capital letters, and he stuck it on the side of my locker, and he wrote the words, even when we're too weak to have any faith left, God remains faithful to us and will help us. Really important, even when we're too weak to have any faith left, God remains faithful and will help us. It was terribly important. I had no faith left. I had no strength left. And here was a promise that God would not let me go. They left. I don't remember them going. I don't remember anything at all happening. Um, But I did fall into a very, very deep sleep. I was heavily drugged, as I say. And... um, just a bit later on that afternoon, I woke up and, do you know, I just felt able to sit up in bed. I hadn't done that for months. It had always taken two people, my mum and my sister or a nurse and Tom. I couldn't physically sit up. I just felt able to sit up in bed that day. The next day, I just felt able to get out of bed. My leg was up like a stalk. My arms were in crutches, but I felt able to walk to the window of the ward and back. 
And you know, bit by bit by bit, all these terrific muscle spasms started uncurling and my arms would come down and my head would come back and my legs started coming down. It was the most extraordinary thing. The um, professor of neurology who I was under, uh, he was a gracious man, you know. He came and he said, um, I'm not... I, I, what did he say? He said, I'm not a man of faith. He said, I'm a scientist. I'm not a man of faith, but something miraculous has happened. Wasn't that gracious of him to say that? That he could recognize that this was out of his understanding. This, this, this didn't happen to people with severe generalized dystonia. And it was amazing because I then was able to get back to family life. I was able to be a mummy again. I had to give back my orange disabled sticker. That was awful. Um, But, you know, we gradually got back into family life again. And it was just like, I don't know, just wonderful to to have my life back. And then out of the blue, something horrible happened. Um, I don't know if you've ever been depressed or you live with people who have depression or you have friends with depression. I went down that sinkhole, quite literally, out of the blue, just straight down that hole into a deep, deep depression. And I thought, this is so unfair. People say, did you ever get cross with God? That's when I got a bit, come on, you know. All this amazing physical healing had taken place. And then I went into this darkness, this horrible place of darkness. I don't need to explain to you about depression. If you are in it or you know people in it, it's a terrible place to be. And my friend came one day to pray, and she said, oh, God, please just make Julie well. And, do you know, as she prayed that prayer, I had in my mind's eye a sort of thought and 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 not an audible voice, but I felt these words, and it was like God was saying, Julie, I've given you your ballerina body back. But what really needs healing is your heart. You need to forgive. You need to forgive that boy who dropped you all those years earlier when you were a ballerina. And, you know, I had no idea that I had pushed that down so deeply. I was such a good performer that that had gone right to the bottom of the pile. The gates had been shut, the key had been locked and thrown away, and I had no idea that God could see right down into that unforgiveness, into that grudge, into into everything I felt about that boy for wrecking my career. And this is what I'm saying about God. He can shine a spotlight on something that might have been hidden for years in your life and you didn't even know, but that he wants to bring to the light and to bring healing and restoration so you can be free. And as my friend prayed and as those words came to mind, you know, that depression literally lifted. And I'm not saying, please don't mishear me, I'm not saying that all depression is about unforgiveness. But for me, it most certainly was about unforgiveness. I don't know how this story is going in with you, and you may have lots of questions coming up. People are skeptical. Well, you know, maybe it was this, maybe it was that. I met a young doctor the other day who was... um, Actually, not so young now. He was young when I was ill, and he was one of the ones at the end of my bed who said, just a remission, don't worry, you know. thanks. (laughs) Um, And he came up to me, we were at a meeting, and uh, he flung his arms around me, this lovely doctor, and he said, "Um, I've just got to give you a hug. I said, oh, who are you? And he said, I was one of the young doctors at the end of your bed who thought that this was just a remission. And he said, I tell all my patients about you. He's a professor now at, at Queen's Square. He said, I tell all my patients about you who have severe generalized dystonia. Isn't that amazing? You see, these things don't happen just for us, do they? They happen for a much wider purpose. And I don't stand here just saying I've got everything sorted and we're living the perfect life, because five years after uh, I got amazingly restored, our then 10-year-old daughter, again out of the blue, was um, diagnosed with a malignant brain tumour. She was 10 years old. And, you know, that kind of rocked our boat again, but in a way that we began to trust God so much that we realised that, you know, he would not abandon us he wouldn't forsake us and our daughter Georgie is still alive she's had surgery she's had chemotherapy she's had um, radiotherapy and she's 30 years old now and a, a wonderful wonderful girl she hears angels singing in the MRI scanner she's so close to God it's amazing lovely girl but what I'm saying to you is you know she's got chronic fatigue as well we go on day by day day by day 
You know, things don't just miraculously sort of, everything's fine. That's not real life, is it? We all have things in our lives that we're trying to, to cope with. One more little story. Um, just after my, all these muscle spasms came out and stretched out, one part that didn't was my hand, and my left hand stayed in a fist. And I couldn't open it. They tried prizing it open. They tried to splint it, all sorts of ingenious ways to make my hand work again. And um, without being too graphic, it was pretty horrible. When, when you can't open your hand, your nails grow, and they grow into the flesh, and you know they bleed, and it gets manky. And you could feel these great big nodules inside of where the ligaments and things had, um, I don't know, not calcified, but if you're a medic, you can tell me what it is. But anyway, you get great sort of nodules of, of hardness under there the tendons have shortened and yeah so my hand was um not really an issue we, we sometimes felt you know it was a bit churlish to say to god you know hang on what about this you know <laughs> done all this what about this but um it was a, a very personal thing between tom and me because if we went for a walk instead of having a nice flat hand to hold he'd have this fist and it was a reminder really of what god had done but I was asked to write this book, Danced Off Her Feet, and I went to somewhere called Burswood, which is a, a retreat house and a Christian hospital in, in Kent. And I went to finish the manuscript of that book, and it was all finished. It had a lot of red pen over it. And uh, I sat there with it on my knee in the sunshine, and I prayed like I'd never prayed before. And I said, God, you use this story. You know, however you want it to be used, please use it. And as I sat there in the sunshine, this picture, this image came into my mind. And um, hopefully, Katie's with her technology, will bring it up here for us. And the picture was as if the, what had happened, this healing, this incredible restoration, was like being given a new dress. It was like a gift. You know when you go shopping and you get just the right dress and it feels good? It, it felt like that. It was a really wonderful gift. And I said, thank you, God, this is fantastic. And then, bit by bit, these sort of other groups of people came into this image. And the first group who came in was sort of, you could see, jumping up and down. And, and one of the girls was just saying, what a lovely dress. Thank God for the healing that's taken place. And they were sort of rejoicing. And I thought, oh, yes, thank you, God. This is great. And then a second group came in, and I didn't feel quite so comfortable. One of them was standing with her hands on her hip, and she was just sort of accusing me, saying, well, why should you have such a pretty dress? Why should you be healed? And by then, I was beginning to feel very, very uncomfortable. And the other person was just crying. She was weeping, just standing there, weeping, weeping, heartfelt sort of grief. And by then, I thought, oh, this, this isn't good. This isn't nice. <laughs> What's going on? And then a third group appeared, and they were just lying on the ground, and they were looking up, and in my mind's eye, in my ear, I could sort of hear these words that they were saying, well, it's a very pretty dress. Isn't that lovely? But I bet there's nothing at the back. I bet it will fall down. Bet you'll be back in a wheelchair in a couple of months. By then, I was taking a very deep breath, and I thought, is, is this God? Where's, it, where's this coming from? And I looked more closely at this dress, and I could see the hem was all unraveled. There was a great thick hem on the end of the um, skirt, and it was not sewn up. It was all unraveled and hanging down. And I just didn't know what it meant. I gathered up my book. I ran into uh, Burswood, into the main area, bumped straight into a chaplain, which was helpful. And I said, please, can you help me? I've had this extraordinary experience. Never happened to me before, something like this. And I said, I, can I explain to you this picture? And I did. This sweet person just said, look, I don't know what it means either. But should we just pray? I thought that was honest. Let's pray. And she just prayed that God would sew up the last bit of the hem. And we didn't even say amen, and my hand just sprung open. Just completely and utterly restored in that second. There were no nodules, there was no blood. There was, it's a smooth palm as it is now in that... Oh, sorry, it makes me quite teary remembering it because it was the most extraordinary thing. And when I got home... Um, I was just sort of standing in the kitchen with my hands behind me like this, and I was leaning up against the work surface in the kitchen, and Tom said, oh, have you had a nice time away, dear, like they do? And, um, and I just went like that, and, you know, his face was a picture. He's not called Thomas for nothing. 
You know, my darling Thomas, he needed to know that this was real. This was God. This wasn't something that we could have manufactured. But what's even more amazing about this, more amazing, is this picture. Because I had no idea I'd ever come and speak to you in Oxford about this. I mean, how brilliant is this? That God gives us a picture to help us understand his ways. Many people will say, yep, I believe God heals today. I don't have a problem with that. And rejoice. There's many, many, many people who say it's not fair. You know, why should you be healed? What's so special about you? And the weeping, the grief of watching loved ones suffer, you know, as we've watched our daughter suffer. It's sad. We can't understand it, can we? And I don't have time to give you a wonderful sermon on why. Thankfully, I'm not God and I don't know the answer, but we all will one day. But, you know, I don't know the why. Why are some people miraculously and instantly healed like that? I don't know. But what I've learned to understand is it's what you do with it. You know, it's not just to go home and say, hey, isn't this great? You know, he, he, he's done it for a purpose. He's done it so that we can understand some more of his goodness. The third group who say, well, it's just a remission, you'll be back in a wheelchair. I want to tell you, on June the 14th this year, it will be 26 years. Now, that's a long remission, isn't it? (laughs) I don't believe it's a remission for one minute. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? And what's even more amazing about this picture is that hem that's hanging down, because God knew that everywhere I had the privilege and joy of speaking about this, there would be people who have bits of hem hanging down in their life that he wants to sew up. He wants to restore. He wants to change. Isn't it clever? I couldn't have made this up. He's so good. I'm just going to end with, with, may I have one more story? We, um, Tom and I got a wonderful invitation a couple of years ago. And it was to have dinner on HMS Victory in in Portsmouth. Have you ever been to the Victory in Portsmouth? Yeah, it's great, absolutely wonderful. We were invited to have dinner. I mean, get your head around this. So excited. Well, I was excited. Um, I'd grown up with a model of the Victory that my father had built for my mother as a wedding present. You know, it's big. I mean, it's that big. All the rigging he'd done from scratch. It was a scratch model. And um, very early on in their married life, my mother was reaching up onto the top of the wardrobe to get the hair dryer down, dropped it onto the case of the Victory, smashed all the rigging. I think things were nearly over from that moment. But I've grown up with the Victory. So when this white card arrived in the post with gold edging and our names on it, this invitation, I wanted to write back in sort of great big shouty letters, you know, yes, please, I'd love to come, lots of love, Julie Sheldon. You know, but of course you can't do that. With that sort of invitation, you cannot do that. And you can't do it by email. It was a formal RSVP. And we, I had to do the whole thing, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Thomas Sheldon thanked the second sea lord for his very kind invitation for dinner on HMS Victory, you know. We still just know how to do it, don't we? <laughs> and, uh, and send back our formal reply. Now, when we arrived at the foot of the gangplank, we were in, Tom was in his DJ, I was in a, in a long dress, and um, I was excited. I mean, I do get excited, but I was overexcited at that point. And there was a very smart naval officer with, you know, they make me excited, do they make him? <laughs> Lovely uniform, sorry, we must stop going there. But, uh, and he was there with a clipboard here, very, very smart. And we went up to him and um, he said, may I take your name, Mr. and Mrs. Thomas Sheldon? He looked down his clipboard and there we were and we were ticked. He said, please go on board. We were piped on board. Now that was exciting. I did trip over my dress at that point. Um, and we arrived on board the Victory for this dinner. Now I thought about this because the only way we could have got on board that ship was if we'd responded to that invitation. How terrible it would have been to get to the bottom of that gangplank with that very handsome man there and he looked down his clipboard and we weren't there. How awful would that have been and we would have been turned away and had to go back home if we hadn't RSVP'd if we hadn't said, yes, please, we'd love to come. How awful if we'd missed out on that wonderful experience just because we hadn't replied. There are many, many people in life and in the church who've never actually RSVP'd or replied 
to this incredible invitation that Jesus has sent out. And he sent it to everybody. But maybe, maybe you've been too busy. Maybe you just haven't got around to it. Maybe you've left the mantelpiece, the, the invitation on your mantelpiece or stuck on the fridge. Maybe you think, yeah, I'll do that later. Never quite got around to it. I didn't realize, you know, until somebody told me that you had to respond. I just didn't even know that. Nobody told me. I didn't realize when I was a teenager that Jesus invites you to follow him. He doesn't force you. He doesn't coerce you. He doesn't trick you. He invites you. He says, come. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's a good invitation. Yes, please. I'd love that one. But nothing matters except you responding in your life. Nothing matters at the moment you die, actually, as to whether or not you've replied, responded to that invitation. Because when we say yes to that invitation, we receive something incredible, much better than a dinner on HMS Victory. We receive the promise of eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, that's you and me. It's not some special group over here or a special group over there. It's you and me. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Every single person has been sent this inclusive invitation from Jesus. All who come receive. And my question to you today is, have you replied to that invitation? Let's pray. We're going to, as we pray, just think about a few things. We're going to think about, I'd love you to think about what needs sewing up in your life. Should we think about that first? You might have something that you've come here this morning that's just been with you or bugging you or just in your life that needs sewing up, that piece of hem, something unfinished, something painful, some memory that has been lurking deep in the depths of your heart, that bit of you behind the scenes that's searching for truth and searching for love. And also, can you just take a moment to think about the empty gap in your life? What are you filling it with? And if you've never replied to that invitation that you've been sent, that it's still sitting on the mantelpiece. I'd like to pray for you now. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Jesus died on a cross for you, and you may feel as if you've stood with your back to him all your life. But the truth of the matter is, when you turn around and face Jesus on the cross, he will take your sin, he'll take your burden, he'll take your sadness, he'll take those dark secrets, and he will set you free from every chain that holds you, bit by bit by bit. And I'm going to say a prayer now which you can make your own in your heart. You don't have to say it out loud. This is between you and your maker. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the invitation that you've sent out to everyone. Thank you that there is one with my name on it. Can you picture now in your mind's eye an invitation? It's got your name on it. It's gold-rimmed. It's an invitation to you. I'm sorry that I didn't reply sooner. 
But today I would love to say yes, yes please, and accept your glorious offer of new and eternal life. You know that my life has been a mess at times. And I've heard that you see behind the scenes. And you know what I'm really like. Please help me today to turn around and to start again. Please come and fill my heart with your love, your peace, and your healing. I don't want to be standing at the bottom of the gangplank any longer with my name not on the list. My heart turns to you now. Thank you for forgiving me, especially when I've messed up. And thank you for bringing me to this point in my life so I can start again. If you keep your eyes shut or down, would you just raise your hand if you've agreed with this prayer in your heart and you've meant it? Just raise a hand if you've really meant it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Bless you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bless you. Thank you. Thank you. We thank you, God, for all those wonderful replies to your invitation this morning. We thank you that there will be rejoicing in heaven. And for those just not feeling quite able to put a hand up, Father, you know because you see behind the scenes. And I'd like to pray for you if you're suffering, not just physically, but if you're suffering in your mind, in your anxious thoughts. Lord Jesus, we pray for everyone who's sick here, all those illnesses that we can see and those that are hidden and behind the scenes. And as you dig deeper into the wells of suffering, help us to drink deeply from the refreshing, cool, life-giving water to give us courage this day to keep going. And for all those who we love and know who are suffering, we pray for health, we pray for restoration, and we pray for your perfect love to cast out fear. Would you please sew up the hem of the garment, finish off what you've begun in people's lives. And we welcome that fresh touch of the Holy Spirit, those bubbles that Ulf talked about. I pray now, Lord, that you would pour your bubbles of joy into the very heart of each woman here that they would know that sense of great joy and love welling up inside them like they've never known before. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.